Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Dr. Sonia Ebron, a PhD of electrical engineering and an entrepreneur with a background in AI. She co-founded Courtroom 5 with her wife, Dr. Deborah Sloan, also a PhD, a former library school professor and qualitative data analysis expert. Motivated by their own difficult experiences of navigating the judicial system, they decided to help others in similar situations. Courtroom 5 provides people with the tools, resources, and workshops needed to help them settle civil cases, with or without a lawyer to accompany them. Through the resources they provide, people of all classes can learn and understand the legal process without being shut out. Courtroom 5 won first place at Duke Demo Day in 2019, and since then has continued to grow. In 2022, Courtroom 5 partnered with FastCase to provide limited scope access to lawyers who use FastCase and to select individual elements of cases where they can provide the most help. It was a fascinating conversation with Sonia, covering everything from her personal journey to her experience as a serial entrepreneur and how her training as an engineer influences her approach to the development of Courtroom 5. Sonia is also the host of a podcast called Who Wrote That Up For You? So we talk shop about the ins and outs of podcast life. Sonia is a fabulous example of the incredibly important role allied professionals can play in driving change in the profession. Enjoy. Hi, Sonia. How are you? Stephen, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks so much for joining. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. You're doing some some really cool stuff. I want to talk about Courtroom 5, which you co-founded, which is designed uh, to help pro se litigants. But let's talk about the origin story for Courtroom 5, which arises out of your own experience as a pro se litigant. And you've talked about that on other media, but talk to us a little bit about that experience. What was it like as a, you're you're not a lawyer, but you do have a PhD. So, you know, you're well-educated, highly intelligent, sophisticated, yet you had your own challenges navigating the legal system. Talk to us a little bit about that. You've got the story uh, there, Stephen. I found myself in court uh, without a lawyer. I got sued. I sought uh, legal counsel and just got sticker shock. I had a PhD. I was an electrical engineer. Uh, as you indicated, I thought I was pretty smart, but I could not pay the, at that time, I think it was close to $300 an hour that would be needed. Plus, a, I think a $5,000 retainer. I just didn't have the money. And you know, thought that how difficult could this be? I'd seen Judge Judy, right? <laughs> I'd seen Judge Judy. <laughs> right. I, you know, it seemed to be a fairly simple case. I thought I had some good defenses to the claim. And so I gathered my paperwork and did a little bit of legal research just to sort of figure out what to do there and where the courthouse was and that sort of thing. And frankly, I got my butt kicked and it was surprising to me. There was a lawyer on the other side who obviously was very experienced in these sorts of things. And I knew nothing. I had no clue about the procedures involved and just the difficulty. I'd never seen legal paperwork before, frankly. And so, yeah, I mean, I, it was a brutal experience. I really thought I'd been mistreated by the court at that time. And just seemed really unfair and unjust. It happened more than once, but I am a quick study. I figured out what was going on. I don't like getting beat up. And so, uh, <laughs> and so I learned what I needed to, to handle that situation better. Along the way, though, I saw a lot of people who were struggling as I had 
many who look like me, but without the educational advantages and just a different approach, I guess, to the whole situation. I've seen people walk into court like it's a business meeting and we're all just going to sit around the table and work this thing out. And obviously, as you know, litigation isn't like that at all. It is not like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so at any rate, once I figured out sort of what was going on and how to handle myself in court, I gained an interest in helping other people do it. Now, obviously, I'm not a lawyer. I couldn't advocate for anybody, but I'm an engineer and I'm used to solving technical problems and realized there could be a technical solution to this. That combined with my academic background and my interest in educating people, Courtroom 5 was born. I have to mention my co-founder, Deborah Sloan, was in a similar situation. She's a librarian, a PhD information scientist, and had had similar experiences in court. And so when I went looking for a co-founder for this project, she just sort of surfaced to the top. We'd been married for a good while by that time as well. So I knew her capabilities and our working relationship was fairly, fairly solid. So let's stick on your experience for a little bit, because I I find it fascinating. The two of you, highly educated, incredibly smart, yet you're having, which are advantages a lot of pro se litigants don't have, as you said. And yet it's a challenge navigating this different world. There's procedural challenges and there's substantive challenges. Did you find one or the other more daunting or harder to figure out? Or were they both challenges? I think the substantive challenges were not as difficult. If you could get to the merits of a case, then you're way ahead. The procedural stuff was was much more difficult. And I mean, at all levels. So the first thing you do as a defendant is you get a summons uh, from the clerk of court saying, hey, look, you've been sued. You got 20 days to answer this thing or you might, you know, uh, lose the case. And most lay people take those words very seriously. You know, if you don't have any experience with it, you come up with an answer. You try to figure out how to answer this complaint. Many people, frankly, lose at that step. You know, as a lawyer, you don't answer a complaint. <laughs> That's not the first thing you do, right? Um, <laughs> not usually. <laughs> not, not, you know, I, I've never seen it happen when you're represented. I mean, there are lots of things. You want to get more time. You want to maybe look at dismissing this thing. There are lots of options you can do. Answering the complaint is something you wait for a court order to do after, you know, you fail to get it dismissed and a lot of other procedures might come into play. But lay people take this seriously. Oh, my goodness, I've got 20 days. And you just you reel off everything that you think might have happened as a defense. You don't know what's relevant. Nobody's ever heard of legal elements to a claim. They're just things you don't even know to ask. And therefore can't research and can't defend yourself. And so that was sort of the situation I faced uh, initially. You end up writing an essay to the judge. You might do it in letter form instead of, uh, you know, a legal pleading. I mean, it's it's just you make a mess. There is a reason that courts don't want pro se litigants in the courts. We tend to make a mess of things. (laughs) You do tend to. Yes. And so those sorts of procedural, I mean, just that's the very beginning of it. If you manage to get past that, then you get into discovery. Nobody's ever heard of discovery. Uh, You don't know anything about admissions or production. of. You don't have you have no idea. You don't know how to respond to them. You certainly don't know how to collect evidence from the other side. You make a mess of things. Right. Again. And so all the way through the process, if you get that far, you are just making a mess of the entire process. And. You know, it's it's the procedural stuff that tends to trip people up. So you and Deborah must be systems thinkers, given your your background. And so tell me about the application of systems thinking to this system. 
I use that term lightly, of legal process. How did you go about thinking through this in an orderly, rational way? First, I had to just understand the flow of litigation. You know, every action begins with a complaint or petition. And then certain things are going to happen. Obviously, bankruptcy law is different from family law is different from every claim type has its peculiarities. But there's a there's a flow from the complaint, the answer, the discovery period. You may go to trial or there are pretrial procedures for sure. And potentially there's an appeal. All of that is going to happen potentially as you go through litigation. And so you could sort of draw a map of the things you need to be thinking about at each stage as you get through it. Some of those things you need to think about in order to get to the next stage, in fact, so that you don't get ejected from the case unfavorably, you know, early on. But there's a map uh, that you have to think through and you want to be thinking about it, but also at a very superficial level, you know, further out. In other words, you don't want to deal with admissibility of evidence or you want to be thinking about summary judgment procedures at the very beginning of a case. If you're on the eve of trial, sometimes a lot of the horses have already left the barn. You don't want to go back and say, oh, hey, can I dismiss this claim or that sort of thing? But it's a waste of time. And so you want to think, you want to focus on just-in-time learning. You want to understand what you need to know, the questions you need to ask, given the situation you're in, given the, the part of the case you're in. That was the first insight, I think, that just helped us think through how to help people think about their litigation. It wasn't so much that you needed to know a whole lot about child custody issues or bankruptcy or whatever your specific claim type was. You needed to understand the procedures because, as I said earlier, those are the things that really trip you up. So Courtroom 5 comes into creation. We're going to talk about the creation process in a minute to try to tackle some of these challenging issues. It would have been easy for you and Deborah to just walk away after your your cases and just go, boy, I hope I never have to do that again, those stupid lawyers. Yet you didn't. Tell me about sort of that. Why take a bite at this apple as opposed to just saying, I, I've won my case. I'm good to go. Yeah, I think Deborah would tell you, for her, it's really a social justice mission. I've got a little bit of that, but Deborah feels it very deeply. She grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, moved to Berkeley and went to school there, got an excellent library program. And she went to an historically black university, Fisk University, and just was deeply embedded with a sense of social justice. And so for her, when she saw what was happening in the courts, it was just intolerable. She could not know what she knew. She couldn't have learned what she had learned in that system and watch other people, again, many of whom look like us, just suffer, continue to suffer. She found that intolerable. If she could fix it, then she was going to fix it, period. For me, and again, I feel some of that, but more strongly, I dislike bullying. I can't stand it. You know, there's the image in my mind of the of the skinny kid on the beach and the big muscular guy coming along and kicking sand in his face, that sort of thing. That's intolerable to me in any situation. So whenever I have an opportunity to beat up a bully, I want to beat up the bully. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing a great job of it in this in this respect. Absolutely. I, I, I get a lot of satisfaction from it. And certainly we laugh all the time about this or that lawyer in this or that case who was just shocked 
at our ability to handle ourselves in court. We've had some interesting experiences there. But yeah, that that's the draw for me. Obviously, it's it's related to the social justice issues, but I like beating up bullies, uh, frankly. And I like solving really tough problems as well. I was doing AI, a machine learning, a long time ago. I don't want to date myself, but, you know, I, for instance, studied uh, machines, electric machines, power lines and, you know, distribution feeders and that sort of stuff and, and wrote one of the most often cited technical papers on machine learning applications in that field. It was really, really difficult. Things are much easier now because you can buy the algorithms from Google or IBM or what have you. But back in the day, you sort of had to do your own coding and, and make things work. You know, I was very attracted to it because it hadn't been done before. And likewise, this, I saw lots of lawyers that I thought had the capability to help pro se litigants level up a bit and wasn't being done. And everybody I talked to said, oh, there's no way you could teach a layperson to compete with an experienced litigator in court. And I knew that to be untrue. And I just had to figure out how to do it for the average person. How do you go about figuring out how to do it for the average person? I mean, you and Deborah have your own experiences in a particular slice. I don't know what kind of court or what kind of cases they were. But as you mentioned, there's all there's a whole range. There's family court, there's small claims court, there's trial court, there's there's all kinds of different issues. Most people would look at this and go, I can't make head or tails of this, or it's too big. You know, I'm trying to boil the ocean. Tell me about how you went about thinking through how to solve this problem. You know, I uh, I believe in models. I'll give you an example. I'm an electrical engineer. One of the most difficult courses for electrical engineers is electromagnetics. Turns out that we spend years in college learning how to draw these lines where wire goes through a simple line. And then you take electromagnetics and you realize it's all been a lie. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's all a lie. The electricity, the current doesn't go through the wires like that. It actually goes around the wires. But in order for us to build things as engineers, we have to really simplify that. We really have to just pretend, okay, that the current's actually going through the wire so that we can have it go places and do things. And so that simplicity has taught me a lot. And so what we did is we took this very complex litigation experience, the flow of litigation and all of the claim types and the challenges, and just decided to model it. Could we model it in the way that I had learned to do as an electrical engineer with current. And so what we figured out is, look, when you're representing yourself, there are hundreds of things you could do at any particular time. We had filed each of us stupid things, things that were just nonsensical from a judge's perspective, because we didn't know. And we'd seen this or heard that or saw something online and it was stupid, didn't apply to our cases. We understood, though, that at every step of the case, there's there's really only two challenges you have. One is to figure out what should you file in this moment. And then secondly, once you've made that decision, how do you make that filing as persuasive as possible so you can get to the next step in the case? Those are really the only two things you need to do at every step. You need to do that a lot to get through the case. But really, that's the model that we wanted to build to help people answer those questions in sequence. And so we developed artificial intelligence that based on a lot of public data initially, and now uh, our user data as well, that helps people based on the procedural history uh, of their cases, we can point them to some information that helps them decide what to file. We've got a library of video-based lessons on everything you'd want to know in litigation. 
from a layman's perspective to just understand your options at each step. So that's the first solution. What do I file? Once that decision is made by the user, we can't tell them, obviously, but uh, once the user decides what to file at any particular step, then we want to help them win on that filing. And so we've built a claims analysis tool where, as you all know, there are elements of every claim and every defense in your jurisdiction. We provide that public data to the user, and then we help them associate those elements with the underlying facts in their cases. Now, most pro se litigants, when you ask them what the underlying facts are, they give you, as we once did, an essay, right? Yes, I've seen those (laughs) in my experience. Yes, I have. Exactly. And so we uh, developed a syntax to describe those underlying facts. We want to know in chronological order who did what when. And we force the user into that syntax, right? So that they can identify what is relevant when they start looking at that list of things that happened to get them into court and compare them or map them to the elements of claims or defenses in their case, then it becomes very easy to start building the house in an architectural fashion. We help them associate any evidence that may have been collected or that they think might help prove those underlying facts. And so we walk them through that process at every step because that analysis tends to surface the most appropriate argument for the filing they've chosen. And so that's the first step in getting them to a winning filing. Once they've chosen uh, or found that argument, we want to help them support it with legal authority. So we give them access to the nation's case law, statutes, rules of procedure, rules of evidence, whatever it is they need. And we teach them how to issue spot to find the most powerful authorities that might support their argument. Third, once they've got that done, we help them choose the right template. So if they want to move to dismiss the claim, we've got a motion to dismiss workflow. Uh, If they want to collect some evidence, we've got the discovery instruments. We help them select the right workflow and then ask them questions that the judge might ask them uh, if the judge were willing to elicit the right information. And so they answer those questions and, you know, in their time, over a period of time, they will flesh that document out. And then we turn that into a PDF document that looks like a lawyer prepared it. It's got the caption, it's got the signatures, it's got the certificate of service, all the good stuff that you all know to attach to your documents. We give them electronic filing instructions if that's available in their jurisdiction. They file the document and that cycle repeats throughout the case. So whenever they filed something or their opponents have filed something or the court enters an order, that cycle repeats. As if it's not complicated enough, talk to us about how you thought through the user experience, because pro se litigants come from all walks of life, different educational levels, different access to technology. It's American society. It is indeed. How did you sort of think through all of the permutations your users are going to have as they experienced your product? We compared our own experiences in court and realized that there were patterns to the work that we were doing. Once we, you know, got some feet under our legs, if you will, once we started understanding what to do, we just picked up our own behavior and being successful in court. But we also just talked to other people who had had similar, similar successes, if you will. We do customer discovery, as it's called in startup world, very, very well. We talk to lots of customers and potential customers about their experiences, about their needs. And it just sort of cobbled together a solution to this problem. 
the description of the user experience that I gave you, though, is the result of literally hundreds of iterations on our model. We started out, frankly, with a blog sharing our learnings in court. Uh, and getting comments and feedback and, you know, just listening to people who were dealing with those same situations and building solutions based on what we heard. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it started at very, very basic and just it continues to evolve. As I said, gone through a couple hundred iterations, but there are thousands of these to do before we, we finally nail this problem. At this point, though, we're really, really satisfied with our solution. We are seeing really solid successes from our customer base, uh, just following that process. Now, I have to mention, not everybody follows the process. (laughs) Shocking. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, we have, as I said, our artificial intelligence is trying to point people in the right directions toward, at least towards the right information. Oftentimes, people come in thinking, Judge Judy, I just got to get the right document template and switch out some language and some facts. And there it is. We see people doing that. Users are, these are adults and we have to let them do what adults will do. But what we've seen is that those who do follow the process and who get to an outcome in their cases using Courtroom 5 are either winning or settling more than 70% of the time. That's awesome. I am shocked every time I I hear those words, Uh, but we continue to do our exit surveys. And so we consistently see uh, those very powerful outcomes. Our goal at this point is to ensure that more of our users get to those outcomes, though. Uh, What we do see is that lawyers go to graduate school for a reason. Lay people coming in trying to go through the user experience that I described, that's a lot of work. People have lives. Nobody's doing this for a living. You have an important case with, you know, life-altering consequences potentially. And so you want to get it done right. But if you got sued, Stephen, you know, you would hire a lawyer. That's a no-brainer. Anybody that can hire a lawyer would probably do that. We've certainly heard that from from our folks. In fact, we see a lot of refugees from the model where you pay a lawyer on a piecemeal basis until you run out of money and they withdraw. And then folks are left in the middle of their cases with nothing, no understanding of what to do. And we see people who know they can't afford a lawyer and come to us at the very beginning. Nonetheless, every one of them would hire a lawyer if they could, someone they could trust and and pay, obviously, to handle this very difficult matter. And so what we're doing now is using our technology to help these people be able to hire a lawyer on an unbundled basis, a limited scope basis for the more difficult and complex parts of the case. We know you don't really need a lawyer to to get a hearing schedule, to file a notice of hearing, that sort of basic uh, work. Our customers can do with no problem if they know the standard, if they you know, understand how to do it. And we can certainly show the average person how to get that done. But summary judgment, you know, a motion to dismiss or filing an appropriate complaint, getting, you know, your facts uh, to support the elements of the claim. Those things tend to be a little bit more difficult. And we want to be able to provide people with the legal services on a what we're calling fractional basis to get those difficult pieces uh, of work done. And then they can manage the simple stuff on their own. Well, it makes complete sense. This is not your first startup, right? You're a serial entrepreneur. That's right. Yes. How has the experience of creating a very successful startup in the legal world been similar to or different from your your prior experiences in the real world? Yeah, I call myself an aspiring entrepreneur, I tell you. I'm a, <laughs> I, I'm a repeat aspiring entrepreneur. 
You know, I think the biggest difference with Courtroom 5 is my co-founder. First, just the fact that I have a co-founder. My previous experiences have been uh, as a solo founder. That is really, really difficult work. It's great to have someone uh, on the team who takes on the ownership that you do. And I don't mean that in terms of stock. I mean, psychological ownership. We are both responsible for everything that happens with the business. And so she and I can have conversations about the business that as talented as my team are, I can't have with anybody else on the team. And so it's extremely important to have a co-founder, someone who um, uh, can just help you build. The other thing that's different is the venture backing that we have. We've gone farther than I think I could have possibly gone with my other two experiences because of venture backing, because of investment. So we're really grateful to all of our, our investors for just the air under our wings, if you will. And the third thing, I think, is the passion that we both have for the mission here at Courtroom 5. My previous uh, experiences were in energy. So I ran a, a firm uh working in solar energy, solar electricity many years ago before it became a big, big thing. And then uh, I was working in energy deregulation for a little while. That never took on the grand plans that I had hoped energy deregulation would. But nonetheless, it was a great idea. But I didn't honestly have the passion for either of those things that I do for the work that we're doing at Courtroom 5. We put in some crazy hours weekly. I can imagine. As founders and the, and the rest of the team as well. And I think all of us just have a vision for the future we can create that I did not have in energy and solar electricity. I know that one of the pivotal moments in the creation and growth of Courtroom 5 was your presentation at the Duke Center on Law and Tech's Demo Day. Tell our listeners what that is and what that experience was like. Duke is wonderful. Duke University is here in Durham, and the, the School of Law is among the more innovative law schools, I think, in the country. And so at Duke Law, there is an incubator of sorts for legal tech companies. The year that I entered, which I think was about three years ago, they were doing all sorts of legal tech, but they had a specific focus for access to justice companies. So we had a small cohort there of about five companies. They were so kind to us. They introduced us as non-lawyers to just what was happening in the legal space around access to justice from the regulatory perspective to some of the other companies in the industry that were doing innovative work to law firms. We met some good friends from LexisNexis there in that program. And of course, my cohort had some friends that I'm still working with today. We've been able to share best practices and, and investors and a number of other things from, from that experience. And so it was wonderful, our first incubator to just understand what was happening in legal. It was very important to us. And we've made some tremendous connections from there. That's fabulous. And of course, you won first place. I did. I won the grand prize. That's right. Yeah. Which was financially nice, but I think probably more validating. It was tremendous. And I'll tell you, as I mentioned, we met, uh, in fact, I believe one of the judges, Jeff Pfeiffer, was the um, head of product at LexisNexis. And we got accepted into the LexisNexis Accelerator almost immediately after that as a result of our performance at the Duke Law Tech Lab there. So where's Courtroom 5 currently as a business and where do you see it going? Yeah, we've got a long way to go. So we've got the technology, I think, exactly where we need it to be. There's a long runway, frankly, in terms of our AI, in terms of our user experience. We're going to continue building there. 
But the opportunity for us right now is in terms of growth using the small and solo law firms that are providing unbundled services to our customers. We are building out a channel that incentivizes solo firms and small ones, consumer-facing firms, to send us the leads they can't serve, the client leads they can't serve, so that they can monetize them using unbundled services in a really intelligent way and in a way that almost guarantees them good reviews. That's, uh, as you may know, one of the most important things to small firms is reviews because that's how client decisions are made on which lawyer to hire. And so we're very excited. We've onboarded several lawyers. I won't give the specific number, but we're covering a tiny slice of the country right now with unbundled services. And we'll continue to build that out uh, over the next year. What parts of the country are you covering? We've got California. We've got Texas. Oh, you're taxing my brain here. We've got Georgia. And there are a couple other states. Yeah. That's not a small slice, California, <laughs> Texas, standing alone, or a big, or a big slice. Yeah, I, I think, New York. I think also it's, New York. I'm sorry. Oh, there you go. Exactly. Can hardly wait for you to come to Illinois. Yeah, uh, on the way, on the way. It's so interesting to me, this combination of human expertise and technology is, to me, the future of legal tech. What have you learned about meshing humans into technology? I don't mean from the user standpoint, from the lawyer standpoint. There's obviously an incentive to do it, as you described, but what have been the challenges? Lawyers are probably second to doctors in being tech phobic. I'll just call it what it is there. Well, I don't know about being second to doctors. I would say we lead doctors. (laughs) There may be a tie. There may be a tie there. (laughs) Uh, And so that's sort of been the heavy lift. We found, frankly, better Acclimation with younger lawyers who tend to be a bit more tech savvy. Uh, they are digital natives more often. But nonetheless, there are still some challenges to getting lawyers to think in terms of truly unbundled services. I think most lawyers understand unbundled as a sort of pay as you go model. And that's not really what's meant by unbundled services. And so we're having to do a bit of re-education there. And to combine that with tech that actually facilitates true unbundled services to get them to work with people who are sophisticated already. Again, our users, our customers are reading case law. They understand the elements of, of the claims and defenses in their cases. They understand, you know, at least what a judge would want to know in some of their, their filings. And so they tend to be a bit more sophisticated than your typical pro se litigant. And so we are educating really both sides of that marketplace on how to work together through technology. Again, you know, we've built a scalable solution, which means that our team doesn't interact personally with either side of that market very much. We let the technology lead in that way. That's a challenge for us, certainly, but also a challenge for the lawyers that we're working with. What's your revenue model for Courtroom 5? Yeah, our customer is the pro se litigant, the person handling their own case, right? So we don't charge lawyers for this service at all. We, in fact, see them as a part of the solution for our customer, the pro se litigant. And so our customers pay a monthly subscription fee to access the platform. If there's a lawyer available for them, they can hire that lawyer directly through our platform. They pay up front. And they pay directly to the lawyer. They pay the lawyer directly. Yes, they pay through our platform, though. They pay the lawyer upfront for the services they select and that the lawyer is is willing to provide. 
Okay. I know we've run over time. If you've got just a couple more seconds, let me ask you about, you've got a daily podcast, which seems incredibly ambitious to me doing one weekly calling. Who wrote that up for you? Indeed. And you and your co-founder host it. Yes, yes. Deborah and I uh, co-host Who Wrote That Up For You. It's um, weekdays at 4 p.m. Eastern. It's about a half an hour show. We tend to have one or two guests who are doing some interesting work in justice, closing the justice gap. And so, yeah, we generally just talk about ways that the legal community in particular is working on providing affordable legal solutions to the public. And where can people find the podcast? I assume all the places where your favorite podcasts are. We stream live, actually, to our Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube channels. So I'll share those with you for the, the show notes here. But if you come to Courtroom 5 Legal on Facebook and Twitter, and you can see us live at 4 p.m. Eastern. We also stream, as I said, to our YouTube channel, and they're recorded there as well. But we also distribute the podcast to uh, Apple, Google, anywhere that you can hear a podcast, you will find who wrote that up for you, available to listen there. Well, I encourage, uh, having listened to a couple of the episodes, uh, you guys are are fabulous. So I encourage our listeners to make it your second favorite uh, (laughs) (laughs) podcast. Thank you for that, Stephen. That's great. Sonia, thank you so much for the conversation. You guys are doing some wonderful thing. It's been been inspiring listening to you talk. It is my pleasure to join you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.